You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. When something is permanently glued together, never intended to be separated, and separation occurs, it creates damage to whatever was joined together. Many are damaged today because of separating that which God intended to remain permanently joined. Today, we are talking about marriage and divorce. Turn with us to Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12, as the pastor delivers the sermon, What God Has Joined. Mark chapter 10, verse number 1 is where we'll start our reading together today. You know, when something is glued together, glued together, never intended to be separated, and you rip that thing apart, okay? So the idea was you used a permanent glue to attach something together and make it as one. And then you try to separate that thing that has been permanently glued together. What's interesting is most all the time, whenever you attempt to do that, you end up with a problem. You end up, even though you may separate the two, you create damage to both pieces that have been separated. Have you ever noticed that? As the glue will pull away and tear away chunks and pieces. And so, yes, now you have two pieces once again, but there's been sometimes irreparable damage that occurs because you've pulled apart something that was glued together permanently. And many are damaged today because of separating what God intended to remain permanently joined. And that's what we're talking about from our text in Mark chapter 10 this morning. So let's begin our reading there in verse number 1. And standing up, he, that is Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And I'm going to ask you as you respond with this today, let's just make this a real hearty response, okay? We, we do this uh, every week. We recognize the scripture that tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So I'm going to ask you to give me a real hearty, the word of God stands forever, like we actually mean that this morning, all right? So the grass withers and the flower fades. Uh, That's what I'm talking about. Much better. Thank you. Well, last week we found Jesus dealing with the sin of disciples who might lead others to stumble and cause others to sin. But in our text today, the Pharisees are once again attempting unsuccessfully to cause Jesus to stumble. They're trying to trip him up, and they are questioning him in the text that we have just read. Now, today we face an issue of as great an importance and of as much debate as it was in the days when Jesus physically walked the earth. In fact, it was an issue that had to be addressed as far back as Moses' day. 
So there's nothing new here in our subject material this matter, this morning. This is something that's been an issue for a long, long, long time. God's intent for marriage is seen from the beginning of creation. As Jesus points out to the Pharisees in the text that we have before us this morning. And God's plan is not up for debate this morning. You understand that? God's plan is not up for debate. However, God's plan conflicts with man's modern want for convenience, doesn't it? And that's where the problem comes in. That's where the debate comes in. It's not a problem with what God's plan is or what God has said. It's just it's not convenient for us. So we don't like it and we will attempt to skirt it and explain it away and justify our actions. But God is clear in his word today. Man has come to believe that he may separate what God has joined and that he can just do so flippantly, just easily. Doesn't really matter. It's not a thing. But man is mistaken. The topic of marriage and divorce invokes all kinds of emotions. I mean, people have all kinds of reactions when you touch this subject. And typically, a pastor has to make apologies before he ever gets into the subject. This happens oftentimes. Before they ever even open the Word of God, they have to start backpedaling before they say what they're going to say because they're afraid somebody's going to be upset at him for preaching and teaching the truth. Let me say that I make no apology for the Word of God. The Word of God is what it is, and it says what it says. I make no apology for that. I make no apology for what it says about marriage and divorce, nor do I make apology for what the Bible says about repentance and forgiveness. So there's nothing here this morning to try to beat up some truly repentant person. Nor is there anything here that makes a repentant person second class or someone to be looked down upon because of some past sin in their life. Many who are hurt and offended by topics like this are those who choose to cling to their sin rather than repent and experience Christ cleansing. So today we're going to walk through this text concerning what God has joined. What God has joined. Now as we look at what God has joined, notice first of all the controversy that surrounds it. The controversy. Verses 1 and 2 of our text tells us that, And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again and beyond. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it is lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1 the location of the controversy, where this takes place. This was a location of controversy because in this region of Judea, the area of Perea, this was where um, Herod Antipas had his jurisdiction. And why this is important is he is the one who is responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. Anybody remember what got John the Baptist in trouble? You know what led to him losing his head? He preached about the very issue that we're talking about. He preached about this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, and he dared confront the ruler of his day for the actions that he had taken. And he called for him to repent. Well, it cost him his life, and it was here in this jurisdiction and in this area that the Pharisees take advantage of the scene. Let's catch Jesus in the issue that caused John a problem, in the area where it caused him a problem, under the jurisdiction of the one who ultimately had his head taken off. And so it was in this location, this region, that Jesus is confronted with this question. What was the issue of controversy here? What was the issue at hand? Well, back to verse 1, just so we don't gloss over it too quick. We saw where Jesus was at. 
Notice what's happening here. The crowds had gathered around him again, it tells us, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. This was an ordinary, normal thing. The crowds were gathering around Jesus, and he would teach the crowds. Now, perhaps the Pharisees saw this as a great opportunity. Let's put him on the spot in a place where it's very difficult, with an issue that's very difficult, and we'll make him lose his credibility with the people. Maybe we can disperse the crowds. Maybe they'll see him as a fraud. Maybe they'll stop following him. And maybe we'll have opportunity to do to him what we really want to do to him. So they were seizing upon this location, this time, this opportunity. But this is a normal thing for Christ to be teaching the crowds. So what do the Pharisees do? They're going to hijack the whole situation. And Jesus' teaching is interrupted by them with this question of controversy in verse 2. They come up to Jesus. They were testing him. They were trying him, tempting him. And they began to question him. They were debating and arguing. And they were trying to, to put him between a rock and a hard place here. They were using an emotional, in, uh, an emotional issue of the day to try to create controversy and drive a wedge. This was the opportunity to ruin a man by making him take one side or the other so that he's ostracized from one or the other, and thereby they have divided his crowd. That's what they're attempting to do. And so what do they ask him? They question him, verse 2, whether it is lawful for a man to divorce a wife or to separate from a wife. Now, there were two schools of thought in that day, which still haven't changed very much, actually. During that day, there was two schools of thought. One was that you could divorce for basically any reason at all. If you were tired of this relationship for whatever reason it was, and the other person wasn't pleasing you, however they weren't pleasing you. In fact, many of the Jews took the opinion that a man could divorce his wife for about anything he wanted to, including if she messed supper up. Well, I don't like the way she did supper tonight. She messed it up. So I've had enough of this. She's out. Or someone else comes along that they think is better. And so he could just move the first one aside. And so flippantly, they could just do away with this relationship at any point they chose. They could get a divorce for anything that they wanted. They could separate from her. Just doesn't, it didn't matter. He was within his rights. That was an actual teaching and understanding during that day in one camp. Doesn't sound too different from today, does it? But then the other camp held to the fact that, well, there is only one way, and that is in the case of adultery, and for no other reason but that alone can a man get a divorce, and that's it. Two camps. All right, Jesus, which side are you going to fall on? Which group are you going to shun here? And that's the place that they had put him in. So we see the controversy that's at hand concerning what God has joined. But notice, secondly, the commandment that's related to this, what God has joined. What is the commandment that was given related to what God has joined together? Look at verse number three. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. Now, there's some interesting terminology here. This is very important that you don't miss the words. Moses gave a commandment. Now, the word used for commandment here means that Moses gave some type of a legal prescription or an injunction, or he wrote a, a method or a way legally that something could take place. Okay, so when we put in a law, and a law takes effect, a law does not necessarily command you to do something. You understand that? We may have a law on the book that does not command you to do something, but it may prohibit you from doing something. It may define the boundaries for you, or it tells you how something must take place if it does occur. It will give you the procedure. So the idea of the word commandment there in verse uh, number five, this is a legal term. It's telling us there's a, a legal process. 
that's in effect. But now look back at verse number four, or actually back to verse three. Jesus, he answers and says to them, what did Moses command you? And when Jesus used this word in verse number three, command, it means exactly what you think it means here. He's asking them, what did Moses tell you you had to do? What did Moses command you to do? And notice how the Pharisees answer in verse number four. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, what the Pharisees do, and we could take time looking into the original language, but what they do is they don't use the same word command. They don't say Moses commanded us to do this. They say Moses permitted us to do this. What Jesus has got them to do at this point is they had to acknowledge there was not actually a command for them to divorce. There was a permission that was given, but it was not a command. We understand the difference in permission and command. There may be an opportunity, there may be a way, but it's not necessarily commanded that you must. That's the difference. So Jesus says, what did Moses tell you you had to do? And they say, well, he gave us an allowance to do this. To write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So in Matthew chapter 12 you find in this same story, the Pharisees basically ask a question. So it makes sense when you read verse 5 when it says, but Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Matthew reveals to us this is in response to a question. So when Jesus tells them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. But then Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, what has happened is the Pharisees have questioned Jesus again and saying, then why in the world did Moses give us this? Why did Moses give us this command? And Jesus acknowledges why Moses gave this in the law. Because he says of the hardness of your heart, for he wrote for you, he wrote for you this commandment. So Jesus is referring And the Pharisees are referring to a passage of Scripture that's found back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. Now, I think it's important that we do this. So turn with me back to the the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and chapter number 24. Beginning in verse number 1. Because I want you to see the Old Testament passage of Scripture, which is being referenced and debated during that time. Deuteronomy 24 and verse number 1. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out from his house, and she goes out of his house, and goes and comes and becomes another man's wife, Verse 3, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin on the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance." Now, what happens in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is not a command given here that says a man or a woman must divorce their spouse. There's no command there to do that. What's given here is a formula, a law for how things must take place. He says this, if there is a certificate of divorce given, and follow with me the the progression here, okay? A man puts his wife away and she goes and joins herself to another man. That man puts her away and now she wants to go back to the first husband. And what does the law say? She can't do that. Well, why not? 
Because what happened was when she joined herself to the next one and now she's going back to the first one, that covenant has already been broken. The, the relationship has already been broken. And to go back again after having gone to someone else and then going back again, he says this is an act of adultery. This is an act of defilement of God's people. You are not to do this. Now, why do I give you that prescription? Because, you see, the Pharisees had taken that portion of Scripture and from that had derived that we can just give this bill of divorcement for anything we want to. They tried to use the idea, if a man has found this indecency in his wife, that he can put her away. Well, that wasn't the subject at hand, was it? The subject at hand was what to do if this occurs. It wasn't that... He has the freedom to do this however he wants. So there's where the debate went. Sounds kind of confusing, doesn't it? Well, it was for them. So they made an issue then of all the reasons why the divorce could occur. The law addressed how it was to be handled when it did occur. So Deuteronomy 24 lays that out, and that's what we see back here in Mark chapter 10, this discussion concerning what Moses had written. Now, Jesus explains in Mark 10 and verse 5 why this provision was ever given in the law to start with, because the Pharisees want to know that. Then why did Moses say this could be done? Why did Moses even give us the option? And Jesus says, verse 5, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. Now, I'm going to lean on John MacArthur a bit here on this one. MacArthur notes that this phrase, hardness of heart here, is not just referring to the idea, well, because man is sin, man is sin, we'll just, we'll just throw a provision in here. That's not what is being said. The idea we have here with hardness of heart is a picture of flagrant, unrepentant pursuit of sexual immorality. The phrase is important here, hardness of heart. What Jesus is saying is this. Moses didn't say that if there's ever a sin, you're good to go. That's kind of what we look for now in our society, right? We're looking for that offense, that, that reason, that option. Ah, good enough. I've got reason. I can do it. I'm okay. I've checked the block. Everything's all right. What Jesus is saying is, and we'll get to this in just a moment, it was never God's intent for the marriage to be broken up, period. That was never God's intent. But because man has sinned, There are these occasions that take place, right? Where there's a really bad situation that occurs. Where there is an unrepentant, continual, flagrant sexual immorality. Think of it this way. In our congregation, if we have a brother who is in sin, you name that sin, whatever it is, We have a brother who is in sin. God has given us a formula for how to deal with a brother in sin, hasn't he? There is a way that we are to address him, correct him, rebuke him, and there's an opportunity for him to come to true repentance. We're not talking about just saying, I'm sorry, right? We're talking about repentance. How many of you believe that there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus? That truly... A repentant heart, Christ can forgive. It's amazing that we've taken certain things because there's really only one thing that's ever mentioned in Scripture as unforgivable, that whatever that sin is, and so we've confronted a brother and he has an opportunity to repent. And when he won't repent, we take the next step, right? And if he won't repent, we take the next step. And if he refuses to repent, what do we do? We put him out of the congregation. We treat him as an unbeliever because... Apparently he is if he's unrepentant, right? What is the purpose of the process to start with? 
The purpose of the process is to bring him to repentance. That he finds the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. That he comes clean. That he begins a process of restoration. Does that mean whatever that sin is the brother has done, that everything is perfect because he repented? Does it mean there's no consequences because he's repented? Not at all. In fact, it might be a slow, long, painful process of restoring this brother who's fallen, whatever that sin is. There may be lasting effects of that sin, but the process is to bring him to repentance. And what we have with Jesus' statement in verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart, you have the picture of whether it be man or woman who commits sexual sin against their spouse. And not only that they commit a sexual sin, but they are unrepentant. They're flagrant. It's repeated. They continue in this life. Do you understand? So, repentance is not saying, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and then they do it again. And then they say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and they do it again. What's evident here? There's evidence that there is no repentance, right? They've not turned from their lifestyle. They've not turned from their sin. And they refuse to do so. So here's where we appeal also, do we not, to God's mercy and God's justice? Do you think on either side of the equation that a just God would intend for that man, and I understand I'm using a bit of logic now, but for that man or for that woman to continue in a relationship that defiles over and over and over, no repentance, no change, no expectation of such. Because of the hardness of your heart, God gives a prescription. God gives a way that it can be dealt with. And so there is a means to deal with this behavior. Now, someone might say, well, it seems like you're making it really difficult for anyone to ever get divorced. Guess what? God never intended for it to happen to begin with. That was never the purpose and plan. It should be difficult. In fact, the legal prescription that God gave there in Deuteronomy, do you know why there was this process of getting a certificate of divorce? I'll tell you why. Same reason why we've done that in our legal systems in the past. The reason why it's not quick, immediate, sudden, gave opportunity for what? Repentance, reconciliation, restoration. But when it would not occur, when that would not take place, we understand the end result. So we see the controversy We see the commandment related to that controversy. Now I want you to notice thirdly, Jesus appeals to the creation. What God has joined together is revealed going back to creation. And that's what Jesus appeals to in verse number six. But from the beginning of creation, he says, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, Jesus is going back to Genesis 1.27, which we read this morning. It's also repeated again in Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 2, that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So who was the source of marriage? Where did it all begin? It began with the one who began it all, with God himself, Jehovah, Yahweh, God. We're told that from the beginning of creation, God made them male 
and female. So God did this. Verse 6 tells us that God made them. In other words, God ordained all of this. He's the one who set it up this way. This was his creation. Listen, when we tamper with marriage, we're tampering with God's creation. We're tampering with what God did and what God established. And notice what else he established in this, much to the chagrin of many in our society today. God made them male and female. God created the genders from the very beginning of creation. And he, and he created how many genders? I know you're smart people in here. How many? If you want to count them in that verse, look at it again in verse six, male and female. I count one, two. How many do you get? Two genders. Male and female. The old joke was that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Well, he did. He created a male and a female and brought them together. And that was the perfect union. That's what God intended from the beginning. He didn't distinguish multiple, three, four, five different genders. He didn't create a transgender, an above and over gender, a fluid gender. I don't know. We get lost in the maze this day. It's very simple. Two, male, female. No going back and forth. God established the home marriage between a man and a woman. Now, Genesis chapter 2 in verse 24 is also quoted here in verse 7 of Mark chapter 10. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, for they are no longer two but one flesh. And we see in Genesis 2.24, it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Cling to his wife. And we're told that when this occurs, the two become one. So there's a joining here of both the spirit and the physical relations that result in procreation. Now, I know some of you guys like to do some woodworking. In fact, some of you guys are really good at it. But you understand sometimes you need a piece of wood this may be a little bit wider or a little bit larger. And what happens if you try to find a tree that will give you a piece of wood that wide? Oftentimes you can't find it at all. Or if you get that board that is that wide, it becomes problematic when you use it for something because it will begin to warp and bend, doesn't it, when it's too big like that? And you have problems or maybe it begins to crack. And so what do you do to achieve that larger board that you need? When you don't use one piece of wood to accomplish the purpose. So if you, let's say, use two pieces now to accomplish that purpose, you can join two pieces of wood together to make one. And in some ways, you can actually even increase strength by doing so. Now, when you join those two pieces of wood together, I'm about to step out beyond all of what I know. So somebody's going to critique me here, okay? But I understand there are different methods and processes for doing this. But usually it involves a couple of things. Usually it involves, one, some type of glue or adhesive. And secondly, it usually involves, whether it be a dowel rod or some type of a biscuit or something that that goes between the two to use to help join them. So you might uh, form a groove in one side and you fit the other board into that groove and you glue them together. And you create from two different pieces, one piece, right? That's kind of the picture you have with marriage between man and woman. You take the two and they are brought and joined together so that they are now one. Can those pieces ever be ripped apart into two again? They can be, not without some damage not without a lot of problem, and it never was the intent to begin with, was it? The intent was that they remain joined. They remain as one. 
the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, the heart of the family is being described here in this passage. A man and a woman joined together as one. As they come together as one, not only spiritually, but as they come together as one as physically, now we have the opportunity to procreate. We have the opportunity for offspring. Children come along. And then those children follow through the same process, right? And on and on it goes. Until we start tampering with the heart of the family, which is what we're doing today, right? So no longer a man and a woman, we make some other creation. And what does that do to procreation? And what does that do to us raising up a godly line and a godly seat? You see how we are tearing down the very fundamental thing that God created in the very beginning? Marriage between a man and a woman. It's also interesting to note, how many wives did God make for Adam? You might notice that. He made one, didn't he? Could Almighty Creator God, who just created everything else in this world in five days before this, and on that sixth day created animals and he created man, could the God who did all of that not have created like 30 wives for Adam if he wanted? He could have, couldn't he? God could have, God could have come up with some spare ribs somewhere if he wanted to. He could have created some ribs. Made some more women. He could have said, hey, hey, Adam, I'm going to give you 70 virgins. He could have done that, couldn't he? So we get this idea that's come along of, of polygamy. And we see this practice, uh, even in Scripture. We see those who did that. But how many of you think if God intended for man to have more than one wife, he would have given man more than one wife? You may think he would have done that. But God gave him one. Why? Because that was his intent from the beginning. He intended him to be with that one and to be with that one throughout a lifetime. He says, Jesus does, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Look at the contrast here. Who did the joining? God did. Who does the separating? Man does. So don't let man separate what God joined together. Now, there are some who, who want to interject man in that first part. They think man does the joining. The government does it or a preacher does it or listen, God is the one who does the joining. He did it from the beginning. He still does it today because it's a miraculous, amazing thing that takes place. We're not talking about a piece of paper. We're not talking about a ceremony. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about relationship. We're talking about God bringing two people together. No piece of paper can do that. But man uses a piece of paper and a court process and all of these things to try to tear apart what God has joined together. He says, let no man separate. So we see the controversy and we see the commandment. Jesus appeals now to the creation. But then we're going to finish up verses 10 through 12, looking at the covenant. There is an agreement, a covenant that exists between man and woman. In verse 10, after this event, we're told that in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. Why do you think they did that? Because remember, it was a big deal. It was a big issue back then. It's what usually happens after messages like this, too. People start asking a lot of questions afterwards. What did you mean by that? What is God really saying here? The disciples come to Jesus after the fact in the house and question him about it again. He says in verse 11 to them, Whoever divorces his wife and remarries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces herself, divorces her husband, by the way, this is a unique verse to Mark. The other gospel accounts don't include this. But it appears to indicate, and has been widely accepted, that this works both ways. In Jewish culture, we also often think of the man putting away the woman, but there would be the occasion where the woman would put away the man. 
And there were some examples, by the way, in church history of this. So um, in verse 12, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, this covenant, this agreement between the two is really what Deuteronomy 24 was all about. That's what Jesus is referencing here when he's explaining this to his disciples. Now, we know that the cause of fornication is indicated elsewhere or adultery. Understand this. There are two areas where the innocent party or two areas where remarriage may occur scripturally and not be considered adultery. That's what we're trying to understand. What are the two areas where remarriage may occur scripturally and not be considered adultery. One is when the innocent party whose spouse has committed prolonged, hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery remarries, or a believer whose unbelieving spouse has left the marriage. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. Those are the only two occasions where the person is free under Scripture to remarry and to not be considered adultery. Now, some have erroneously taught from this that if a person has been divorced for an unbiblical reason, they've joined themselves to another person, that they just continue on living their life forever in adultery. They're always committing sin, and they can never be forgiven and the only thing they could possibly do is just divorce the second person. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches us that those two wrongs make the right, that now that they have sinned, that they must somehow atone for that sin by sinning again. Scripture does not point that to us. You understand that, right? There is forgiveness available. There is repentance available. So we're not saying it's not. But what Jesus is saying is, outside of these two occasions, for one to remarry would be to commit adultery. The bonds are still there. They still exist. The problem we have with this kind of thing is that many of us are looking for this validation or justification. We look for that reason to make it. Permissible. I heard a video, and I won't call him out because I don't think he's very popular anyway, and we don't want to make him any more popular than he is. But I listened to a guy just recently on a video who spent all this time trying to explain the word fornication away to make it basically sound like the very thing that many of the Jews believed. You could just get a divorce for whatever you wanted to. By the time this pastor got through, there wasn't a whole lot left that a spouse couldn't do that you couldn't consider, really, they crossed the line. I'm justified. I would hesitate to look any deeper to find out why he would continue to teach and preach that, but there are some who will seek to justify in any way they can, find any excuse, any loophole, any possibility But the reality is God never intended it to be permissible. That was not the plan. So that's the point I'm trying to make this morning. We like to get like the Pharisees did. We want want the firm prescription. We want the black and whites. We want all the reasons and justifications. And I believe what God's saying this morning to us from his word is this. Stop looking for all the reasons and excuses and ways it can happen. And understand what the real plan is. What does God intend? God intends one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's God's plan. Perhaps this morning God is calling on some of us to repent of a violation of our covenant, of our agreement with our own spouses. 
You know, maybe some of us sitting here, maybe some who've been married for many, many years. Maybe we're not committing the grossest of sins against our spouse, but, but perhaps there are ways and areas of our life where really we've not been faithful to our spouse. And maybe God is calling us to a place of repentance this morning. Maybe there are some who stand in need of forgiveness today for disregarding God's institution. Maybe you're dealing with the guilt and the pain and suffering that comes along with that. Realize that God's forgiveness truly is available for the repentant heart. You say, why really is all this so important? Because marriage is a picture of God's covenant with us. It's the church in Christ. And I'm going to finish with this scripture. It's Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. Paul talks about this mystery. And he quotes this same section that we've been reading that Jesus also quoted. In Ephesians 5 and verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've seen that in the Old Testament. We've seen Jesus quote it. Now Paul quotes it. But look at his commentary on this passage, verse 32. This mystery is great. And it is great, isn't it? That two become one. But Paul says, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What's he doing? Paul is linking these two relationships. The same verse that we take to understand when a man and a wife come together, they become one and one flesh. Paul says that is a representation. That is a picture of Christ and his church. Two become one. What happens when we mess with the picture? You see, it's a reflection. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his relationship with us. Christ is the perfect example, isn't he, of what a good husband is. The perfect example of the groom. He's the one who gave himself, didn't he? In every way for the bride. Christ sacrificed himself at a level of sacrifice none of us will ever achieve, but he certainly gave us the example, didn't he? Though he had all power and he had all authority and rightly deserved it, though he is still the head of the church, even today, what did he do? As the head, as the authority, he laid himself down. He sacrificed himself. For the bride. He gave himself for us. He took our sin, our punishment upon himself. That's really the opposite of a selfish relationship, isn't it? It's a selfless relationship. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life it brings conviction. When I think about that selfless nature of Christ, to do the will and glory of the Father, to lay Himself down on our behalf. And I'm reminded that's the example I'm to follow, especially in my marriage. Especially there. You see, what God has joined May we never separate. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for the opportunity to address an issue that seems to create so much controversy, question. Father, we confess this morning that we are a sinful people. We thank you that you came to bear the price for our sin. Lord, may we not 
take that for granted this morning. But Lord, in areas where you're convicting and where your Holy Spirit is moving, may we truly repent today, turn from our sin, confess our sin before the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray you'd bring healing to those today who have been affected by divorce, by separation, by problems in relationship. Lord, I pray you bring healing in their life. God, I pray you would strengthen the relationships that are represented here this morning. Lord, many that are marriages that have existed for many, many years. God, strengthen them even greater today. Lord, forgive us where we take lightly what you have ordained and what you have created. We confess our individual sin and the sin of our society and making light of marriage and home, perverting it, polluting it, tearing it asunder in so many ways. I pray there would be a restoration of the home. Let it begin in a people that's gathered here now who love you and whose heart's desire is to glorify you in all things and especially in their marriages. And thank you, God, for the ultimate example of a perfect union that's given to us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we thank you and we pray today. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.